uh, the secular experiment. <laughs> you know what I mean by secularism? This is, this is the attempt to author a meaningful life without God, right? That's what secularism is. And for a couple decades here in the West, thank you guys, we've been, uh, we've been after that. And so basically the narrative goes like this. Uh, we are the lucky ones. We are here. We are the products of natural selection and the strong eating the weak. And we just happen to be the ones who survived. And so here we are. Time and luck are on our side. Good job, everybody. Well done. Uh, the, here's the only problem. Entropy is the great destroyer of everything. In the end, uh, the world will unwind, everything will fall into chaos. The sun burns out and goes dark. Uh, the universe freezes under coldness, and everything we built in life to have meaning and purpose and all of this goes into oblivion. Welcome to the secular world. Okay, seriously, that's the narrative. And so what you have to do is invent whatever meaning you want to have in your own life. That's your job. You only live once, so have at it. Go be happy. Uh, this is all you've got, right? That's secularism. And so there's a problem inherent in secularism, which is we promise our children will love them forever, but we're lying through our teeth. And how do you live in a world like that? And so what we do is now we have to find meaning. And so we go to career, and career is not just a way to make money and be productive in the world. Career is a meaning maker for us. It's where we find identity and purpose, and we know who we are. Or maybe it's romance for some of us. We figure if we could just find that perfect someone, the someone we have chemistry with, we will love each other and experience a bond that humanizes us, gives us identity, purpose, meaning, and we'll know who we are. Or maybe it sends us off in, in artwork and we do art and we speak our beauty and we try to find meaning in that. Or we go after pleasure or whatever to try to establish an identity in, of meaning in a world that does not any longer have meaning because secularism has taken hold. How many of you know this world I'm talking about? Here's what's crazy. So we live in this beautiful world, right? We sit with $300 jeans, drinking flat white coffees with iPhone 11 Pros in our pockets, right? It's the beautiful world by all the metrics that you can measure about wealth and affluence and uh, ability to have technology and violence at all-time lows. And like you look at all the external stats and everything is up and to the right except... Things like happiness, <laughs> anxiety, depression, mental illness, all of those things are skyrocketing. And here we find ourselves in this really weird paradoxical, paradoxical world where everything is beautiful and we're miserable. And we're stressed out and we're exhausted and we don't know which way is up. This is life. And I don't think those things are disconnected. Because here's, here's how we're made. The Bible says that we are all made with eternity in our hearts. And we can ignore God, but we can't change the fact that we are inherently spiritual creatures. That we are made for longing and connection with God. We have appetites to know who we are with meaning and purpose. And you can ignore God, but you can't change that wiring. 
And so what you do is if you don't believe in God, you take all of that longing and you attach it to all this other stuff, romance, career, flight wats, Flight whites, I can't even say the word. Just whatever it is, we attach it to those things, and none of those things can ever give meaning, purpose, fulfillment, identity. And so we find ourselves living with just ambient anxiety, uh, depression, mental pressure on us. We are crushed by the weight of you just go be you, you go be yourself, go just be your beauty, be your truth, go you do you, and just... Hopefully that'll be enough, and we're scared because what if I'm not enough? I tried to be me, and it wasn't enough. I tried, what if I picked the wrong me to be me? What if, and all this pressure is crushing us. And so this is life where we are right now. And so here's the reality. This is what I'm realizing. The pen, our own pen, as the author of our own meaning our pen doesn't have enough weight. We, we do not have enough weight in our authorship to write a life that is truly meaningful for our souls. We can't do it. Authorship is about authority. We don't have enough authority to, to write the script of a meaningful life in and of ourselves. We can't do it. But the Bible says we weren't ever meant to do that. That God is the author of the story of human history. And that we come alive when we find our lives connected with the story that he's writing. He is the author, the authority, who is writing a grand story and narrative. And when we try to find meaning apart from that narrative, it never works. But when we realize that our story comes alive in connection with the grand story of what God is doing in all of human history, then we find our place. Then we know who we are. Then we have lives that are meaningful. And so every so often we come up to a passage in the scriptures that remind us of this grand story arc of what God is writing in the pages of human history. And that's the text we're looking at, one of those texts today. We're going we're gonna to follow a story arc. The writer to Hebrews has been telling us that, the, that Jesus is the hero of a giant plot line that started years and years, hundreds of years ago, in the people of Israel, in the covenant that God gave to Moses. And it is all the threads of this are coming together now in the person of Jesus. And he's the hero of the story. And now our stories are being tethered to his heroic activity. And so the trajectory of our lives is full of meaning and purpose because of what Jesus has done. And so what I want you to see today is as we look at the threads of what God has woven through the story from all of these years, is that God knows what he's doing. He has good purposes and intentions in the story that he's writing, and that you and I, we will find ourselves most alive, most full of meaning, most full of purpose and identity when we know our place in his grand story. That's where we find our story makes sense. You with me? So let's dig in. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9 today. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. If you didn't bring a Bible and want to grab the Black Pew Bible that's in the rack by your knees, you will find this on page 1005. 1005. And just a reminder of where we've been. 
The writer to Hebrews has been saying that all of this stuff that came before the law of Moses, the sacrificial system, the temple, all that God was doing in the past through what was called the Old Covenant is all the wind-up, the build-up to, to the, the, the prequel to this moment that Jesus has now come and ushered in the new covenant, a new era, a new way of relating to God through Jesus. And so we're contrasting the old with the new, and in these chapters, that's what we're unpacking. And today we're going to look back at the old and see how it points to the new. So if you'll join me here, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was repaired. This is the tabernacle that was built in the wilderness. God gave Moses the directions for that. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. <laughs> it's one of my favorite verses in all of Hebrews. It's like, okay, so remember all this again? Yeah, we're not going to talk about that, okay? I, I think that's just, it's, you know, they didn't have erasers. They didn't have whiteout. They're just writing on like a, on a scroll, and they just, you know, you've used up all this. And Okay, so he goes, mm, nah, I'm going to go somewhere else. Okay, so you just kind of scratch that out. Okay, verse 6. These preparations have thus been made, uh, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, not, taking, not without taking blood, by which he, offers for him, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Thanks be to the Lord for the reading of his word. Now, in a great story, in a great story, you have foreshadowing, right? You have themes and threads and plot line that all kind of come together into what the French call the denouement, right? The, uh, the kind of the, the moment where all the threads of the plot line come together and are resolved, right? So it's the mark of, of brilliant authorship that, that the threads come together into one place. And so what the writer to the Hebrews is telling us is that all the threads of what came in the Old Covenant, especially in the temple and, and the tabernacle and all the furniture and all these pieces that he's mentioned here, is that they are like threads that are weaving together into a bow as Jesus comes. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to walk our way through the tabernacle, okay? The temple, the furniture, the way this is built, the way the writer of Hebrews does here, and we're going to show how all of these strands fit together. You'll, you'll notice that in every case, there is a past, present, and future orientation to the furniture in the tabernacle or the temple. So they're, they're looking back in remembrance. In the present, it's all about entrustment, trusting myself to God. And in the future, it's about anticipating what God will one day do. 
Remembrance, entrustment, and anticipation, okay? So we're going to kind of look at that. That's our grid for this morning, okay? So each of these pieces. First, let's talk about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was divided into three main courts. You had the outer courts, you had the inner sanctuary, and then inside of that you had the holy of holies. Here's a picture of what it might have looked like. Um, You can see the outer courts there surrounded by that wall that's a bunch of tent fabric that separates it off from the rest of the camp of Israel. Then within that, you have the inner sanctuary, which is the tent within the courtyard, okay, that big tent there. And then subdivided within that, you now have the holy place, which is at the back of the tent, uh, which is the place sealed off from with the veil that keeps the holy presence of God away from the, where the priests do their main work, which is in the inner sanctuary. So this threefold division of sacred space. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, uh, if you want to go back and catch it up. But we're going to walk in now uh, to the outer court. The first thing we would see if we walked in there is what's called the brazen altar. The brazen altar. It was made of acacia wood. It's about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, four and a half feet high. Uh, It's covered with bronze. And it has horns on each of the corner, which symbolize power. And there's a continual fire burning here. Never goes out. And this is where sacrifices are made every day uh, before God. These sacrifices look back in remembrance. They remind us, they look back to the time when Adam and Eve once were in the presence of God in the garden, face to face with God, but then they were kicked out, right? They were kicked out, why? Because of their sin. And their sins have separated themselves, them from a holy God. They were driven out to the east. The temple faces east. So now Israel is walking back in from the east into the presence of God. And they come back the same way that God protected them. They come back through sacrifice. God killed the animals and clothed them, covered their, sh- their sin, their shame with the garments uh, made out of the skins of the animals. And now people are going to come back in with an offering, a sacrifice uh, to God. And so what I want you to see is that it's, it's looking back to the garden. It's the way back, but it's also now about entrustment. It's not just about remembering what happened in the past. It's active in the present. That they are coming with a sacrifice to offer to God, doing it exactly the way he prescribed in the covenant, in the law. We're going to bring this animal for this and this animal for that. And we're going to sacrifice it in a certain way. And there's there's a whole ritual with that. But we're going to do this because of the promise of God. God promised if you do this, you will be forgiven, cleansed, and we'll be good. We'll be good. In other words, atonement, we are right with one another, is achieved through a substitutionary sacrifice that is offered on our behalf, in this case, an animal. And what I want you to see is that salvation for the Jewish people was by faith in the promise of God through a substitutionary sacrifice that they did not deserve, but they received by grace. Do you realize even in the Old Testament, salvation was by faith through grace in a substitutionary sacrifice? So all these notions that sometimes float around that the people of God in the Old Testament were made right with him by obedience to the law, that's Pharisaism. That's never what God intended. That's what the Pharisees taught. 
but that is not what God intended in the old covenant. It has always been from beginning to end by grace through faith in a substitute. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? Okay. And of course, this is about trusting God that he will indeed make me right, but it's also anticipating, anticipating a time when no more sacrifices will be needed. These animals were inadequate. They can't cover the life of someone made in the image of God. They're temporary. We have to do them over and over and over again, but the people of God were looking forward to a time when Hebrews now tells us it's come, when Jesus will make a once-for-all-time sacrifice for sin to cover over us so that there's one sacrifice and we're done. No more carnage, no more death, no more blood on the floor. This is what's coming. This is where we're going. So remembrance, entrustment, and anticipation. The second thing we would see is the bronze sea, this huge laver that is right behind the brazen altar. Um, it is six feet in diameter, this huge thing. It's like a giant bird bath right, for albatrosses or something like that. That's a little joke. But anyway, it was for washings, for ceremonial washings and cleansing. Um, and it, but it was a picture. It was called the Bronze Sea or the Laver. Um, bronze Sea. What, why call it a sea? That's weird. Well, okay, it had, again, remembrance, entrustment, and anticipation. What, what, what is it remembering? Think back to the very beginning of creation. When God says, in the the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, what was the description of it before he kind of messed with it? Now, the earth was formless and void, and there was darkness over the face of the deep. So you have this picture of, in the very beginning, there was chaotic waters, chaos waters. Ancient Near Eastern people all think like this, the chaos waters of the sea that are untamed, unruly, unstructured, they're out of control right? The chaos monsters live in there, right? Leviathan and Rahab and all these dragons that live in the sea and this monsters out there and right. So, so in, in their minds, the unformed, unstructured universe is the sea. It's with a realm of chaos and evil and destruction. So here comes God and he orders the world. He creates space for life and he creates land and structure where there's order and precision and he fills it up with good things, right? This is what God does in Genesis 1. So the whole picture is that God is, is ruling over his creation, bringing order out of chaos, bringing light out of darkness, bringing, bringing precision out of things that are out of control, defeating chaos and bringing in order. Are you with me so far? So this is a picture in the temple of the presence of God of the still, quiet sea that has been tamed in the presence of God. There's no chaos where God is. There's order and presence, and it's good. It's still clean, cool water in the presence of God. This is the picture. And it is this that they will now use to cleanse and to wash. Because when we sin and are defiled, in many ways, we're moving back toward chaos, toward disorder. We're moving away from God's good plan for the universe. And so this is cleansing so that we come back into right orientation with God. See, this is the picture. This is used for ceremonial washings. And so as people come and, they have, and as, the, as, the, as the priests supply this and they wash their hands, it's about God restoring order and balance and control and sovereign rule over the chaos that has taken hold in people's lives. Does it make sense? 
So they're entrusting themselves to these promises of God that he can make things right. And of course, it's anticipating all kinds of things. It's anticipating that one day God would come and wash us, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Baptism is a picture of, it's an outward washing symbolizing an inward washing, isn't it? That God would wash us with, he would wash us with the water of his word, that he would purify and cleanse us and make us holy on the inside. And of course, one day in glory, like in the, with the new heavens and the new earth, go to forward to Revelation 21, one of the things it says is, now the dwelling of God is with man and he will be their God and they will be his people who wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And one of the things it says just down there is, and there was no longer any sea. There's no longer any sea. Well, again, go back to the beginning. In the beginning, chaos waters. In the end, no more sea, no more chaos, no more no more anything outside the, the, the authority of God. Everything has been ordered and right. You see the picture? And so here's this story arc. And of course, Jesus exercises a little bit of his authority when he says, to the storm, peace be still. And so God, Jesus is now calming the waters of chaos in his ministry. And this is what will happen in the end. Again, a beautiful thread going all the way through. The next thing we would see as we go in and part the curtain and go into that inner tent is we would see on one side we would see the lampstand, on the other side we would see the, uh, the table of bread and straight ahead of us before the curtain we would, see, um, we would see the altar of incense. Let's just look at these one at a time. On, on the left hand side we have the lampstand. We have the lampstand. Scholars tell us that the lampstand was deliberately modeled after the Jewish concept of the tree of life. Again, back to the Garden of Eden, the tree of life, the provision of God for the people. This lampstand is formed as, as, an, as an homage, if you will, to the tree of life. It is hammered out of a single piece of gold. There are seven oil lamps, each with an almond blossom capping the top where the wick stands out and the flame is lit. Life and light together. Tree of life, the light of God. These are parallel concepts in the Bible. John 1 verse, John 1 verse 4 says, in him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. So this concept of light and life together here in this lamp, the candelabra here. It has seven, seven lamps on it. Why? Well, different theories one is that those one, one for each of the days of creation, seven days of creation. Another theory is it's because there were seven visible luminaries in the sky that moved, right? The sun, the moon. Uh, you have uh, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So you have seven celestial objects that move in the sky, different than the stars. They stay, they stay fixed. These ones move, right? That's what planetes means. It means wanderers. And so they wander through the sky, and there's seven of them, and maybe it's an homage to that seven points of light for seven luminaries in the sky. We don't know. It might be seven days as part of the Sabbath cycle. But either way, you have this imagery of seven. We really don't know why. But here it is. Again, it's not just remembering creation, but it's also about an active entrustment because the psalmist says, you are my light and my salvation, 
God's word is a light to my path. It's a lamp to my feet, right? This idea that God is the one who illuminates just as he came in a pillar of fire to lead and guide the people through the wilderness. He comes in his word to lead and guide his people and we follow him. We trust what he's telling us. It's a picture of that. And of course, it's anticipating as well because Jesus will come and he will declare himself, I am the light of the world. John says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overwhelmed it, overcome it. Revelation 21, verse 23 says, at the very end, the new heavens and new earth, there is no need for any sun or moon, for God himself is their light. And so we're moving from let there be light all the way to God is their light. It's a beautiful picture. The next thing we would see if we turned around is we would see the table of bread. It's called the table of showbread or the bread of the presence. It goes by different names. It's an acacia wood table covered with gold. There are 12 flat breads, think pita, in six, six, two rows of six laid out on the table. And uh, the priests, if they were in there lighting the lamps and whatever, if they got hungry, this was like a snack for them. Okay, it's a little snack. Isn't that nice? God put a little snack table in the, in the temple for him. It's very nice of him. And every Sabbath they were replaced, so don't get crazy, you know, just, just eat a little bit. But again, it, this idea of breaking bread in the presence of God, to have fellowship with him, it reminds them of Eden. When they walked and talked with God, they had fellowship with him. They shared the same domain, and they were with him. There was closeness. And there's 12 of these little pieces of bread. Why? One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It is not just the Levites, the one tribe, who are the priests who are in there eating the bread. No, no, no. This is symbolic for all the people who are now being in fellowship with God. They're breaking bread in his presence, as it were, even though they're on the outside. Uh, They are now right with God, in fellowship with God. They share a meal with God. This is what this is symbolizing. They're trusting that the sacrifice is given, and all the rituals followed indeed will lead to fellowship and atonement being right with God. And all of this is looking forward when Jesus will come in John 6.35 and say, I am the bread of life. And he shares a meal with sinners and tax collectors, doesn't he? That all people may come now through Jesus and have right fellowship with God through him as he breaks bread with them. And then in the upper room, he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The other piece of furniture that's here uh, that is most often associated, it, it's in the inner sanctuary, but it's associated, it's right up against the veil, and so it's really associated with the Holy of Holies, even though it's on this side of it, so we'll, we'll treat it in connection with the next section, even though it's actually in the inner sanctuary. That's exactly what Hebrews does, by the way. It treats it in connection with the Holy of Holies here. This is the altar of incense. It's, it's sitting there right in front of the veil. So you see the veil behind with the cherubim with their wings on, embroidered on the curtain. And there in, 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 in the middle, right in front of the curtain, 
is the incense altar. It looks a whole lot like the bronze altar. It's just smaller and taller. And this one, this altar is not for meat or sacrifice. This is for incense. So probably, you know, if you ever burn incense or whatever, that smoke-filled, scented um, sort of smell, this is what they burned on there. And they burned so much that it made a huge, thick cloud of smoke that went up and went into the holy place and shrouded the whole thing in cloud, in smoke. It's fascinating. And this is remembrance, looking back, remember again, it, oh, the, the, the incense was symbolic in, in Israel's thinking of prayers, prayers ascending before God, going behind the veil and into his presence, okay? This is the picture. It's communion with God, communicating with God, the smoke going up and entering into his presence. Again, reminding us of what we once had in the garden, face-to-face, walking with God in intimacy with him. But now we come, and because of these sacrifices, we can offer our prayers, and they truly do go behind the veil into the presence of the holiness of God. It's also reminiscent of when God showed up on Sinai, and how did God show up? In a big, thick glory cloud, shrouding the mountain in darkness. And so God here is again shrouded in the glory cloud in the heart of the temple. And all of this is looking forward one day to the moment when that veil will actually be pulled back. When, when we used to do this a lot. We don't do it too much anymore, but the, you know, a bride would come down the aisle and she had a veil. Remember those old weddings with the big veil hanging? I mean, we throw it over the back now, but it used to cover the face, right? The whole point is waiting for the moment when the veil was pulled back, and there was face to face. We could see the one we love. This is the picture. And so all the veil, the veil was there for, as in anticipation of the time when it would be pulled back. On the Day of Atonement, and then finally in Foley, in Jesus, who, of course, is the one as, as he dies, the, tail, the uh, temple veil is torn in two, top to bottom, and access to God is now available. We are face to face with God once more in Jesus to be with him. Once we pull back these curtains, which again only happened once on the Day of Atonement, we would see the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant sitting there. This is what that would have sort of looked like. Again, it's made of acacia wood coated with gold inside and out. It's hollowed out in the middle. It's a chamber. There's a lid. On top are the cherubim who cover over what is called the mercy seat, which was where the blood would be applied from the sacrifices, the mercy seat of God. The cherubim cover and guard over this holy presence of God place. Now, when you think cherubim, um, uh, I don't know what you think of. Um, we actually have very well-documented history on this. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Uh, but let me show you some images of cherubim from the ancient Near East, okay? Uh, this is from Sumeria. Sumeria is a very ancient people, predates the Hebrews. Um, but this character here on the left, it's kind of a character standing there. Uh, there's actually uh, wings going out horizontally, and if you can see it a little bit, there's a second set of wings, like a dragonfly, kind of going up and to the sides. This is a cherub 
a cherub. Can you believe this? All right, here's another one. This is from Egypt. These are uh, contemporaries of Moses. This is when uh, these are two cherubs, cherubim, that are standing across from one another, guarding something holy with their wings. You can see that they're humanoid characters. They have human faces. They have the wings of an eagle, okay? Um, Here's some from Phoenicia. This is a, uh, it's harder to see, I'm sorry, but on the left here, you have a, a king that is enthroned, and you'll notice down below, there's like what looks like a lion that is a part of the throne. And so the back legs of the lion are the back legs of the throne, the front legs are the front legs of the throne. You notice the king has their feet on a, on a footstool out in front, and there's wings going back. You have a human face, eagle wings, and a lion body. This is a cherub. Um, it's not, somebody in the last service said, is that like a sphinx? A sphinx doesn't have wings, so not a cherub, but same function, okay? Guardians of tombs or holy places or sacred things. If you go to China to this day uh, and you read about ancient Chinese emperors, you will notice that they are seated on a throne flanked by mythical creatures who are guardians of the emperor, Right? or the empress, and if you look at the different throne structures. This is all over the world, um, and it's in Israel as well. This is Hittite uh, culture. Hittite culture here, uh, we've got two cherubs. Notice the wings, they have heads of uh, eagles, right? Or seahawks, let's call them seahawks, right? There it is. Um, <laughs> and uh, so again, human, anthropomorphized creatures with wings, um, this is, again, that's from the Hittite uh, culture. Here's an Assyrian cherub. Uh, this is an ox, if you will, an ox with wings and a human face that fits the Assyrian uh, sort of sense of style, etc. Here's another example of an Assyrian uh, cherub. This one is an, is got the face of an eagle and, uh, again, has wings. Um, this is an artist's rendition of the Temple of Solomon, Um, Solomon made certain deviations from the tabernacle structure, including just kind of fancying everything up without asking God. That's interesting theology. We'll talk about that if we ever get to it. Uh, But you'll notice he's created two guardians of the holiness of God on either side of the Ark of the Covenant, and these are cherubs most likely in the image of what he would have uh, created. Now you say, okay, now which of all those crazy creatures was actually on the Ark of the Covenant? Great question. Uh, if, you had to, if you had to ask me to guess, I would probably say the Egyptian style. Uh, here it is again. The reason being, this is where Moses is from. This is where the people of Israel who have been for 400 years. And so if God says, put cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, this is probably what they would think of. And so this is likely what is actually on there. It's definitely not these creatures. Um, these next ones here. Next slide. It's definitely not, definitely not those little pudgy, fat children. Uh, nothing like that happens. Okay. In the Ark of the Covenant, so we're going to open up the Ark now. There are three items that are on the inside of the Ark of the Covenant. There's the manna. There's a golden urn that had a piece, a, a cluster, a, a little batch of the manna that God sent down in the wilderness to provide for the children 
of Israel. They saved it in this little jar uh, in case they wanted to snack later, I guess. It's, I don't know how it kept or whatever, but surely that's what they did as a remembrance of God's provision uh, for them. Uh, it will anticipate, I think, in many ways, the, the, the bread that Jesus provides in the wilderness when he feeds the 5,000, right? Uh, Moses brought bread in the wilderness. Jesus brought bread in the wilderness. It's a little picture of all of that. Then we also have Aaron's staff that is included in the Ark of the Covenant. You say, I don't remember that. Well, Aaron's staff, this is from Numbers 17. Uh, there was a whole dispute among the people of God about who got to be in charge and got to be the priests and all this. And so God said, I'm going to settle this. Each of you bring your staff and put it before the, the tent. And uh, Aaron's staff uh, blossomed. It grew branches. It's a, it's a stick. It's a walking stick. It blossomed. It grew leaves. It bore almonds overnight. Okay? Miracle. But it was a symbol that Aaron was the legitimate priest. God had spoken, and so he would be the priest for Israel. They put his staff in there to remember that moment. By the way, this is exactly what God's doing with Jesus. He says, God's saying in, in Hebrews, you are the legitimate high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And how do I know? With Aaron, something dead came to life, right? With Jesus, he is a high priest because of the power of an indestructible life. He came to life and bore fruit. So this is all, you see, it's all pointing. It's all pointing uh, to Jesus. Then also in the thing are the stone tablets. These are the stone tablets that Moses brought down, the second set, because he broke the first set. Remember, he threw them down and broke them. So this is the second set of tablets that Moses brought down. He puts them in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what is going on here? So you have the Ark of the Covenant with all this stuff in there, and it's closed, and God is looking down at the stone tablets, which are the law that God wrote. You got to do these things and you'll live. If you don't do these things, you die, right? And what's the history of Israel? They didn't do the things, right? They deserve death. And so God is looking down. The, the, the Ark of the Covenant is his footstool, theologically and in enthronement language. This is the thing he puts his feet on. Okay, because he's, anyway, so he's looking down, and he sees the broken law, and the death that is due, and on the day of atonement, the high priest comes in, sacrifices a bull for his own sin, puts a little bit of that blood on the mercy seat, goes and sacrifices a goat for the sins of the people, brings a little blood, puts it on the mercy seat, right? Sprinkles it seven times. And God looks down at the broken law, covered with the blood of the sacrifice, and says, it's covered. It's done. Guilt atoned. Sin, shame covered. It's finished. It's theological. And all of this, again, it's pointing back to the reality that we're estranged from the presence of God, cast out from his presence, and the only way back in is through sacrifice, through the mercy of sacrifice. It's pointing to Jesus, who will be the sacrifice once for all for our sins, not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And then when God sees the blood of Jesus, he says it's enough. It's covered. It's atoned forever. 
This is all pointing ahead. This is why in chapter 9, verses uh, 8 and 9, that we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, verses 8 and 9, it says, in a sense, everything that was going on in the old temple was like the inner sanctuary, but not the holy place. It was ministry on the outside, but it hadn't quite got to the inside. When the priests were in the outer chamber, in the inner sanctuary, they, they, uh, it meant that it wasn't the Day of Atonement. Because <laughs> on the Day of Atonement, they went all the way in. If they were milling around in the inner sanctuary, it meant the Day of Atonement hadn't yet come. And the writer to Hebrews is saying, everything that was the wind-up, the Old Testament, all of that stuff was in a sense, it was just inner sanctuary work. And now we have a great high priest who has gone through the veil, has passed into the holy of holies in the presence of God, and is now making everything right. It's a new era. A new, the partition is open. We are in the presence of God. In a sense, everything was just on the outer work in the Old Testament. Now we go into the inner place under the, under the work of Jesus. Does that make sense? This is where he's going. And can't you see, in all of this, this grand story arc of what God is doing, from creation, fall, redemption, to recreation, that God is weaving this beautiful story, this tapestry, all of these threads woven together in the person and heroism of Jesus so that he will be enough for us and all things will be new in him. This is the story of all human history. So let me give you two takeaways before we go. Number one, God is weaving a tapestry, friends. He is weaving a tapestry. Do you realize God took all the pieces, all this furniture, all these symbols, all this stuff, and he wove it all together into this moment where Jesus comes, and it brings our story in, and it changes the trajectory of the world, and we live in this great story. He's weaving it all together, including the gory, bloody pieces of the story. Do you realize the temple stunk? It was like a meat market in a third world country. Flies everywhere, blood on the floor. It w- there, there are estimates. It's, the temple's right along the Kidron Valley. There are estimates that of the gallons of blood that flowed down that valley on the Day of Atonement. That are, st- I mean, it's just disgusting. That's also how Jesus walked up into the city to be crucified, through the blood. It's crazy. But my point is this. God took all the gore, all the brokenness, all the bloody mess, and he wove it together into the story. He did this with Jesus too, right? Some of you are wearing a cross, like as a jewelry item right now, and it's beautiful, it's got diamonds and gold, and it's on, right? You're wearing an instrument of crucifixion, and of execution. It's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. It's weird. But it's become beautiful, has it not? It's become beautiful because God wove even the gory, messy, bloody parts of the cross into a beautiful story arc that we now look at and go, wow. 
right? He makes beautiful all of this ugliness. And friends, he's doing the exact same thing with your life and with mine. All of the pain, all of the tears, all of the gory bloodiness of our stories, he is weaving together into a tapestry that is in the end beautiful. In the end. If you've ever seen a tapestry on a wall, they're beautiful, right? These rugs or whatever that are hanging up on the wall. Have you ever flipped one over? They look awful. Just threads going everywhere, mismatched. Just just a big mat of stuff. It looks ugly, 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 ugly. And so often our lives feel like that. We see threads going around. We're like, God, what are you doing? I don't understand. It looks like a mess. But we don't see what he sees. Because one day he will turn that around. And we will say, wow, look what you were doing all along. And we don't get to see the other side till later. Just like you didn't get to see the other side of the temple until Jesus. And we won't see the other side of the cross until resurrection. And we don't see the other side of all the stuff we go to until Jesus comes and makes the world new again. But in the meantime, we trust him, you see. That's weaving a tapestry. He's doing it in your life and mine. The psalmist in Psalm 23, he ends, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Right? Including, a couple verses before, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Surely goodness and mercy in the valley, even in the valley. Secondly, this is the Lord's table. (laughs) This is the Lord's table. And so don't you realize this meal right here is in the same way symbolic of everything in the temple and everything that Jesus will one day bring. This is it. That Jesus is the sacrifice offered on the altar. It is he who has washed us clean, taming chaos and disorder. It is his light that shines into our life and brings beauty and direction. He has prepared a table before us in his presence, his body broken for us. He shares a fellowship meal with us. And it is his blood that is applied to the mercy seat so that we might be right, that we might come home. And so don't you see, we remember, we remember his sacrifice. We are entrusting, trusting in his promises that by grace, through faith in Jesus alone, through his substitutionary and atoning sacrifice, we are right with God and anticipating. Whenever we have this meal, eat this bread and drink this cup, Paul says we proclaim the Lord's death till he returns. And we look forward. Remembrance, entrustment, and anticipation of our Jesus. That's it. This is the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Father, we marvel to see your intention and hand authoring a story like this.
that all these random pieces that feel so disjointed also have a meaning, purpose, connection to the plot line of what you are unveiling through your authorship of our story. And Father, you are the author of our lives, the author of our stories. And we come alive in our story when we realize we're part of your story. And this is what you are doing. And so, Father, as we gather now around this table, we ask that you would remind us once more that we can trust you, that you make beautiful things out of the dust, that you resurrect broken and crucified lives, that when we surrender to you, we find ourselves more alive than we could ever have imagined. And so, Father, help us to embrace this. Your body broken, your blood poured out to make all things new, first in us and then in all creation. We praise you. We remember you. We entrust ourselves to you. And we anticipate all that is yet to come. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said,